and welcome to Sparks 538 Science Podcast, where we read interesting science-related books and then talk about the big ideas behind them. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell, and today we're going to be talking about the ideas behind Michael Lewis's latest book, The Undoing Project. And this is kind of a special podcast for us. In addition to uh, two of our science writers, we have Nate Silver, 538 Editor-in-Chief in the house. Hey, Nate. Hey, everyone. And we have Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Hey, Anna. Hi, Nate. Hi, Blythe. And Maggie Kurth-Baker. Hi, Maggie. Hello, everybody. Okay, so this month we're talking about The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis. Can someone give us a quick summary? Sure. So The Undoing Project, let's see, is by Michael Lewis. Uh, it's about Israeli psychologists Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Um, they essentially did the founding work that became the field of behavioral economics, which is obviously a huge part of 538's uh, Orbit. Um, so essentially the work they did uh, showed that the errors in judgment that human makes are, humans make are systematic. And so before they, they had started their work, um, economists tend, tended to think that humans were rational, which now seems kind of funny, but you know they assumed that we were all Bayesians at heart and were uh, making judgments on probability and risk, uh, you know, sort of following statistical principles. But uh, the work that Kahneman and Tversky did showed that there are systematic errors in the kinds of biases we make. Um, so the book is about that, but it's also about sort of this great romance, platonic romance between these two scientists yeah. and how they're work and lives intertwined with the history of Israel and a lot of what we understand about economics today. Right. I, I thought it was really interesting to hear about their process and how they work together. And that really, really close partnership um, was as much part of the story as the ideas that came out of it. Yeah. And, and also how it, the book is written so that so many of the ideas that they were studying are written into to their lives. Like you really see them come out in the way that they interact and um, how 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 they yeah how they approach their lives I mean, is really interesting mm -hmm. yeah so as anna just pointed out like a lot of the ideas here are somewhat foundational i think maybe for 538 and nate i wanted to get your thoughts on you know how you were how you think about these ideas as you were reading this book i mean it's hard not to read the book in the context of um the election in 538's yeah. work <laughs> um because it feels like yep. the intersection of politics and journalism in particular, this is also true when they talk about some examples from from sports, mm -hmm. right? But it's like a, a cauldron of cognitive bias, basically. The way <laughs> that people view political events, the way that people come up with post facto explanations for things that seem very obvious at the time and don't really stop to pause um, and think, does that help me understand, predict better the next time around? Dealing with uncertainty and people are are bad at underestimating uncertainty um, or estimating uncertainty period and tend to underestimate it instead of mm -hmm. overestimate it um, so it's all it's all very pertinent and also how these guys are are um, they're a little bit provocative right um, yeah they got a lot of pushback they got a lot of pushback and they kind of lean into they're not the happy warriors although they're different characters and yeah. kind of opposites right but none of them are, are in the kind of happy warrior uh, camp. They're both willing to kind of um, troll people <laughs> a little bit and let, let people know that they're including they're wrong. The entire and, field of psychology, including the entire field or, of. So they really are kind yeah, of economics you know, too. But yeah, I mean, they really kind of have an anti. I mean, anti-establishment's not quite the, but an irreverent. Right. I think is the word I'm looking for. I really loved the like related to that. I really loved the parts where they were talking in the book. About the sort of social milieu at Hebrew University that 
these guys and their ideas grew out of. I think there was one point where um, uh, Michael Lewis was talking to somebody else about a final exam in a psychology class where the students were just given a published paper and told to figure out what was wrong with it. <laughs> Which and is like n- in no way terrifying. <laughs> like, oh God, yeah, it's terrifying, but it also seemed like the most fun final exam I've ever heard of. <laughs> Maggie, <laughs> I, they also both, that's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, they they also both did a lot of self-training, which was kind of interesting because you could, I mean, so much of their thinking was like by moving outside of the realm of the existing belief set. And so it's like hard to imagine that if they had come up through sort of really traditional education and training that they might not have, it's easy to imagine they might not have gotten to where they did, which is kind of interesting in itself. And part of that was because they were in Israel and the Hebrew University was originally on the other, you know, was at, at one point in Palestine after they had divided i mean it's you know right there's a lot of complex geopolitics happening well i think it was also interesting to kind of think about that in the context of that time period globally for scientists because i know that anna and blythe and i have kind of looked at at various points in time the difficulty of finding a job in academia as somebody with a newly minted phd today and reading sort of about that time period and just I guess sort of not exactly easy to get involved, but that it was much easier to sort of forge your own trail and still end up with a prestigious career, whereas you weren't like as locked into kind of following these specific steps and getting these specific postdocs, because otherwise you would have no hope of, you know, ever getting published or ever getting the job you needed, like that kind of freedom to be a heretic in some ways seems to have been really, really valuable to them. And and that was something that I noticed a lot reading this book. I mean, there's kind of a frontier spirit to it, right? Both of their research and and the kind of milieu of being in Israel when it was a new country and everything is new. And so the culture there is everything is questioned, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, you don't take a lot for granted because you don't have people dug in to some establishment view of things. Um, and that can make things very contentious. Well, and I thought that was interesting, too, because they in the book, he constantly talks about these differences between the way Americans act and think versus Israelis. And that kind of plays into some of the conversations that are going on in psychology right now, where you have these studies that look at narrow groups of people who may have fundamental differences with other people in other societies. And, um, and, and yet we ascribe their behaviors to the whole of mm. humanity. You know, so like the very famous problem of using um, middle-class white college students in the United States to project onto the thought processes of the entire planet. And so it's kind of interesting to see that happening where there was this constant, um, you know, pointing out that like the Israelis behaved very differently than the Americans in the same social settings. After reading this book and after the presidential election season, I really just had this giant temptation to scream wrong at you guys periodically throughout the Oh, you mean like because the Israel in Israeli universities, it's uh, acceptable yeah, and encouraged for people to normal. yell at each other. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that that was like a normal debate you didn't, practice. Well, also, here, Maggie, so. no, nobody ever told you you couldn't do that. So, I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no rule against it. You can call me an idiot whenever you want. <laughs> and then I get to decide if you're right. Um, yeah, well, that's why. But the whole thing, you know, as Nate mentioned earlier, made me think of the the election. And, you know, there was a lot, um, there's a lot of talk in the book about how, about hindsight bias and, you know, people being very critical about, um, you know, methods and predictions leading into something. Um, 
because to them, the outcome that we eventually got seems obvious in retrospect, you know, and it really, it really just hit me reading this right after this moment. And I don't know if there were, if there were thoughts people had on whether, um, whether these ideas have actually made people or helped people think differently when they approach probabilities, or if we're still sort of pushing against a, a society of people who think more determined, deterministically. I mean, it's certainly hard. It's certainly hard to convince people that there's value in being less wrong, right? It's hard to convince people <laughs> that um, that we gave Trump a thirty percent chance, and if you gave Trump a two percent chance, that we were right and you were wrong, yeah. right? Um, gamblers get that, right? People who are used to dealing, you know, stock pickers mm-hmm. would get that. Um, but it's not a natural human instinct, and people also confuse um, kind of metaphysical uncertainty <laughs> for for or you know epistemological i should say uncertainty is really what it is the limits of our knowledge for like hedging your bets right um if you say that trump has a 30 percent chance you're saying sometimes candidates with this polling three out of ten times they will win right and that's as good as we can do mm-hmm. um you know and the problem is if that three in ten chance comes through they're like well what if you looked at this or that variable instead or looked at these polls differently or what if you know you looked more at the white working class vote or whatever else and the problem is they just construct uh, explanations that aren't really predictive at all. But but it definitely, I don't know, I do think mm-hmm. there's something particular about politics where you have rare events, elections occur once every four years, and wars and, and political movements take years to play out, right? Yeah. Um, whereas in sports, there's maybe some irrationality. It gets beat out of you a little bit if you can see the benefit of adopting a different strategy very quickly. Well, part of what you're talking about there, Nate, is interesting because you you know you write this all the time, but we have such a small sample of presidential elections, especially in modern day, to compare to. And they talked about that a lot. How you know people have this tendency to make more out of a small um, set of of instances and, and try and see it as like part of the larger parent group. But we don't have we don't know what that larger parent group is because we've had so few elections in the modern era. Yeah, and people have fairly bad instincts for the importance of of sample size right you know people don't know um how much more robust something that's happened a hundred times is something that's happened 10 times and 10 times versus versus one time um and so you know kind of classical notions that people are efficient bayesian updaters or whatever are not necessarily true although i do think also that um there are and this is part of why i think they create a lot of tension kind of in tversky is because there are mistakes made by experts that don't always match the mistakes made by by lay people where experts tend to be extremely stubborn um and tend to be very reluctant to change their minds about things once they're fixated on an idea um ordinary people that's often true also but the reverse can be true too people can update too quickly based on um oh i thought this thing was this and now i had bad service at this restaurant one time so i'm never going back it's a terrible place now right so, but there there are different types of biases, and they intersect in complex ways. But also, what's that sweet spot? You know, like where do you, how do you know what the point is at which you should change your your? <laughs> you, actually, you actually apply Bayes' theorem, or but okay. but it is hard, yeah. right? And the answers to this are, and they don't claim to provide right. a lot of easy answers. And this mm-hmm. is also can be said of five thirty eight, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we can have a very sophisticated critique of the way that campaigns are covered, for example. Um, and the critique is kind of easy to prove, right? You can point to lots of f- foolish statements that were made 
what the alternative is is harder to say because to some extent you're just telling people you have to accept that um, there's a lot of uncertainty either inherently in the world, either it's inherently random, or what I say is in our judgment, and our judgment's flawed. And there's a quote here that says, um, that's Lewis's quote, but I think is appropriate, and it says, to acknowledge uncertainty is to admit the possibility of error, right? And I think that's why people tend to resist this so much. I mean, you also wonder in, in the realm of politics if people have kind of learned to, um, I mean, not just exploit people's irrationality, which goes back to the dawn of time, Right. Um, but to kind of exploit, to quote some of Kahneman's other work, kind of their fast thinking instead of their slower, more reflective thinking, um, you know, and that was certainly a difference between Trump and Clinton in the campaign where Trump was making kind of a lot of gut appeals. And if you kind of scrutinize the argument, it might not hold up all that well. I think, you know, um, one problem in the news business is that when people are clicking based on headlines and tweets, um, and things that are shared on Facebook, then it's also kind of a very gut reaction as opposed to, to looking a little bit deeper and looking under the surface of things. Um, you know, people are capable of making, I mean, I hear a lot of, uh, uh, unfortunately, if you're out to dinner or something, you hear a lot of conversations these days about politics. And people make these very sophisticated sounding arguments that if you actually know the subject matter are quite superficial and sometimes quite wrong, right? But um but, you know, it's kind of a matter of, of artifice versus and, and how kind of fragile in some sense the artifice is. And I think what was said earlier about how, you know, these guys, um, especially Kahneman, um, do not come from a background of, of privilege exactly. I mean, he was a Holocaust survivor um, and they have a lot of real world experience. I mean, serving in the Israeli army, for example. Um, and I think he kind of need some of that to um, to want to peel the layers back a little bit. But so part, Nate, part of the tension you're talking about here, though, is that like it, it, it may be more easy for somebody who is not an expert to change their mind and recognize their biases than it is for an expert to do so, partly because they have so much um, at stake in, in being wrong, I would guess. But one, you know, the, the book doesn't really get directly at what you what you can do about this. Um, I mean, it was, you know, it was interesting that, like, you know, they took uh, these tests to statisticians who know all about statistics, and they made the same mistakes as other people, right? I um, mean, Anna, what we can do I, to counteract know, our own biases, like what we can, how we can do that individually, or how we can do that at a big societal scale? I right. Well, I mean, that's, I guess okay. that's what I'm curious. Like, what do, you, what are, what do we know about what we can do to ha- help people understand probability and statistics in our, in their lives better than they currently maybe do? Well, and I actually have one question that I want to kind of build off from that. We're talking about how experts have a tendency to sort of double down. And it feels like there's kind of been in the way that people consume media and the way that we talk about media, a little bit more of an understanding of some of these statistical issues, some of these uncertainty issues, but maybe just enough that people feel like they have an expertise that they don't have, like Nate was talking about. And if we've educated people just enough that they think of themselves as experts, have we actually like helped them double down? Well, I want to see, yeah, I think that's a good question. I want to address these one at a time. Um, yeah. So Anna's sort of, how do we challenge, how do we counter counteract this and counteract our existing biases in and think probabilistically when when that's the way we should be thinking. 
Right. So like I'm thinking about this in terms of public health um, for obvious reasons. So I, you know, it's uh, like people often confuse or often forget that if you choose not to do something, that's a choice as well as uh, as much as doing something. So like, let's say spraying for Zika, there's been some controversy over some fairly um, some sprays that are considered fairly toxic. Right. mosquitoes, right? But the choice to not use those sprays is a choice just as much as using them is and like but we think about the risks there differently right but so like how do you you know how do you help society kind of understand both sides of this and take some of their our you know our built-in biases that have been um written about by Kahneman and Tversky like how do you you know how do you how do you help people deal with that I'm not I'm not sure that I know a good answer to that Yeah, I mean, I th- I think the closest thing the book would say to an answer is that you kind of have to slow down when when uh, facing complicated problems, right? I mean, that's kind of the um, you know, there's not a lot of metacognition, I guess, thinking about thinking that people tend mm-hmm. to do, right? Um, and so you know, you might have that friend who deliberates for half an hour over what to order for dinner, um, but then whether to like quit his job or something, he'll just make a decision very impulsively and, and stuff like that. Right. And people, um, have, uh, have instincts that are well designed to account for everyday types of situations. Those same instincts can get people in trouble in situations that involve more complexity. Right. So, so does that represent a problem for media today? Like, does that mean that we like, sort of inherently need to slow down before we write headlines and throw things up on Twitter? Oh, sh- sure. I mean, you know, um, yeah. I mean, that's kind of one of our fundamental critiques. <laughs> when, when I look back at when I look back at the things that's I've gotten my wrong, takeaway, or, but yeah, but it's almost always it's not the things where we have sat down and really tried to analyze something, right? It's when mm-hmm. you're relying on your instincts, you can get very dug in. I got very dug in in the primary to the notion that, oh, you know, the political science says that Trump is very unlikely to win, right? Um, when you kind of begin to peel that back and when you also say, well, let's say that's a good prior belief, but but at what point should that prior belief be overwhelmed by the evidence, right? right. Namely that he was winning all these states or at least was leading the polls in them. Um, you know, that's not intuitive. It's kind of a math problem that you actually have to do the math and be deliberate about saying at what point should I should I say polls outweigh my prior basically um, and you know but people don't want to do that amount of work. Well, and that that kind of mirrors something that happened in the book where they talked about they used experts to build algorithms and then the algorithms were better at the decision making than the experts were. And yeah. I mean, I'm curious, Nate, if you sort of feel like that happened here i mean is that what you're saying that like kind of your, <laughs> your algorithm that you had built and taught to recognize these kinds of things yeah i mean i think uh, i think an expert i you know i think people are better than algorithms um at coming up with the basic structure right i mean because algorithms don't have any structure to them they're just kind of executing a set of code that you set up basically um and the notion of kind of self-taught or machine learning i mean i'm skeptical about these things right and so people mm-hmm. can you know the basic structure behind, let's say, kind of our failed or my failed Trump prediction in the primary, right? The structure behind that thinking might be solid, right? Which is that there is some reason to be suspicious of a candidate who's leading the polls in July or August, right? When he doesn't meet these traditional criteria, at some point, 
down the line, you should override that based on the fact that he's winning states and delegates and is ahead in the polls. But the mechanics of exactly when he goes from, say, a 5% base rate probability to a 80% probability because he's winning everything, I mean, that, you know, I probably can't estimate that all that well. If you commit things to an equation, then you probably can. And your skill comes from deciding kind of ahead of time how that equation should be structured, but not kind of doing the math in, in real time. People's subjective probability estimates are pretty bad, although there are some exceptions. I mean, you know, um, kind of uniquely, if you play poker, you have to make these subjective probability estimations on the fly, and you'll win or lose money based on whether you correctly estimate a 40% chance or a 45% chance of your opponent holding a certain hand. But that's a case where you have kind of a closed system too, right? Whereas politics is a very, is a very open system. Hey, Nate, how do you decide when to question yourself? <laughs> I guess I'm more of a Kahneman than a Tversky because I do it, I do it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm um, hypercritical of, of things that we write and things that, that other people write too. And you're kind of always looking for, um, for the first flaw in an argument, right? And this is, by the way, this is something that I think our editors do pretty well at, <laughs> at 538, right? We train people to say, hey, when you read something that someone submits, then then what are the potential flaws in the argument? And, you know, um, I, I'm not sure if that's a natural instinct for people either, right? You know, I, if I get, you know, a copy of the New York Times or The Economist or, or The New Yorker or whatever else, right, um, the various things I read regularly or a book, mm-hmm. you know, I want to, like, highlight all the things that I think are unproven or potentially wrong. And, and so, you know, it doesn't, I don't know, I find it kind of fun. But, um, but it can could pra- make people miserable. <laughs> well, and you can practice that too. That right? reminds me. Yeah. That reminds me of the letter that Christy uh, Ashwanden, our other science re- reporter who is on uh, book writing leave right now, the letter that she got from one of our readers that she interviewed for her story about reader comments. He said that, like in the past, when he had been interviewed by journalists for other stories, he had the sense that they had kind of already decided what the story was about and were coming to him for quotes. And that talking to Christy was the first time that he'd had the experience of talking to someone who was clearly just gathering information and then was going to figure out what the story was. And I think that that is, at least as far as my process is concerned, that that's a fundamental part of journalism and a really interesting part of journalism And maybe one of those things where when we talk about like what is journalism and isn't, which is, you know, one of those things that sort of come out of the election, that ability and desire to not know the answer ahead of time might be one of those things that makes journalism different from non-journalism. I think that's a good point, Maggie. And I think it speaks a little bit to experts doubling down on theories that they've been studying for a while that they already believe in. And then also whether it's when it's problematic for people who are newly exposed to something like, you know, behavioral economics or the theories that um, Kahneman and Tversky were writing about. Um, What happens when they're newly exposed and they buy in fully and then they charge ahead without perhaps always having a full understanding of the the theories themselves or really sort of what they're expressing or how to operationalize those out in the world. 
And were there, were there examples you were thinking of, Maggie, about um, times where that may have happened? Um, I'm not sure if I had anything particularly, uh, particularly like that was on the top of my head with that all of a sudden. But do you think so? But you think there might be a problem where people have a little bit of knowledge and then extrapolate it in the wrong way? Yeah, I mean, like I, I'm just kind of basing this. <laughs> This is all very anecdotal and maybe me doing the exact same thing I'm thinking about. But like, this has been my first year working for 538. And it's been, you know, I've been a science journalist for 10 years, but this is the first year that I've had friends coming up to me during an election season and wanting to talk to me about politics, um, which I am not an expert in at all. But it sort of gave me this sort of realization that a lot of my friends who are not political scientists who, you know, don't do this for a living, um, have a feeling of being not of being experts exactly, but of having gained some level of expertise in a way that I'm not sure would have been true 10 or 15 years ago because of the change in the way that we talk about politics. So they felt like they knew something about forecasting yeah, based on yeah. their um, in, in their interaction and, with 538 and modeling and maybe modeling elsewhere right. too. Yeah. And then, and then like after the election, it sort of became clear to me that not all of them, but like a lot of them didn't have that expertise that they thought <laughs> they did. Um, <laughs> mainly. I think a lot of us had those conversations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think part of what you're getting at is that because there was um, um, the there was more clarity um, in the last two elections that this time around people felt like they maybe had a better handle on what certainty and uncertainty looks like than they, they did this time around. I think that one of the things that really got thrown into stark relief for me was the lack of understanding about what probability is and that it's not exactly saying like, because you have a 60% chance of Clinton winning, that's not the same thing as saying Clinton is going to win. And I think that from just, again, my anecdotal conversations with people, that that was the way a lot of people were interpreting it, that they weren't thinking about it as rolls of the dice where 30% of the time it comes up something different. They were thinking about it as, I guess, maybe more likelihood than probability. I mean, I think they kind of, tend to interpret it as people often will say the phrase, oh, Nate's giving Hillary a 70% chance, right? It's like, no, it's a computer program and that, you know, and it automatically inputs data and it spits out a number, right? Um, But no, I mean, people, I think, don't understand that when you give something a 70% probability or when an algorithm gives something that probability, it's saying that the 30% thing will happen three out of 10 times, right? It's not hedging. It's not my kind of personal, like, oh, there's a 70% chance I'll get Italian food tonight, right? It's like, um, it's saying that this is a close election. And I guess what's frustrating, I've had a lot of conversations with people about about this particular thing, is the notion was that, hey, um, for a long time, sites have projected the number of electoral votes, right? They'll say, oh, Clinton is ahead in states totaling 300 and some electoral votes. And we think, well, but how solid is that lead really, right? You have to look at probabilities. And so we think we're being more responsible. But then you realize that you get into people's cognitive biases a lot. And people, um, you know, people don't, you know, people, I've had people ask, you know, well, when you say 80%, 
how often will that happen? Right? It's like, well, <laughs> eight times of, out of ten. Eight times out of ten. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But that's not intuitive for people. One, one thing that I found kind of interesting to help, because I've had that same conversation with a lot of people, is to explain that, like, that also means that two out of eight times, two out of ten times, the opposite thing does need to happen, or the model is also wrong. Or the model's wrong. Um, and mm. I feel like that's that's really helped people kind of grasp that, like, you know that's what a probability is, right? Like it, both things need to happen that percentage of the time for the model to be right. I mean, I do think in this particular election, because it wasn't just like we were giving, excuse me, that <laughs> our algorithm gave Clinton a 70% <laughs> chance. It's so easy to do. <laughs> and we never discussed the 30%. I mean, we were kind of screaming at people, um, hey, this is a much closer election than you might get gather from reading other news coverage and a much more uncertain election, more to the point than you might gather from reading other coverage. Um, and so you should be more concerned if you're a Democrat about the chance that Trump could win and kind of making that argument every day. So I think people use this a little bit as an excuse. And I don't know. I mean, I tend to think that um, I mean, this is a deeper topic, but, you know, contemporary American political journalists in particular have some sort of resistance to empirical or probabilistic thinking that is extremely high, right? And I'm not quite sure why why that is exactly. I think it might have to do with, um, you know, the tropes of journalism are not set up well in ways to describe ambiguity and uncertainty, right? You're supposed to kind of tell us the world as it is, right? Right. There's a desire for experts, I think, and experts. There's a desire for expertise. And yeah. I, think, I think they don't realize that um, the typical article about the presidential campaign is full of lots of predictions. Um, and they don't think of them as predictions, right? They think of them as truths that some expert told them or whatever else, right? But, you know, they are predictive statements and oftentimes they turn out to be wrong. Um, you know, kind of Kahneman and Tversky also talk a little bit, or Michael Lewis does rather, about what's a prediction versus a, a judgment. And, you know, their definition is that a prediction is superior to a judgment because it involves estimation, estimating uncertainty, right? Um, but, you know, there are lots of things that were like, well, um, well, you know, Trump is competing in Michigan, a state that Democrats haven't won since, or Republicans haven't won since 1988, for example, or maybe even before 88. Um, you know, and that kind of implies it's an idiotic thing for him to do, and it's kind of a prediction implicitly, although that Trump won't win Michigan. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes those predictions, as I call them, turn out to be wrong. At least if you're putting a probability on something, you're you're being honest and precise about about uh, how much certainty or uncertainty you think there is in the environment. And I think that that brings us back to the book a, a little bit um, and Kahneman and Tversky's relationship. You know, Kahneman is very much a self-doubter, which Nate kind of mentioned earlier. Um, and I think Nate also mentioned he went on to write the book Thinking Fast and Slow and um, that addresses some of these issues, you know, some of these questions directly in terms of how we think about the world and how we can perhaps fight against some of the, our cognitive biases. And I think all of that was really interesting, too, like, you know, thinking about being humble and asking questions and questioning ourselves over and over again, which I think is difficult to do because if you're not accustomed to doing it, I think it could potentially make you feel a little... Um, a little off kilter, you know? I mean, I think we categorize things and have assumptions because they do help us understand the world. Um, but at the same time, you know, is that the best way to understand the world? It seems like it probably isn't because time and again, they're proved wrong. Yeah, I mean, like you have to have some uh, 
heuristics or, or shortcuts, right? And so it's inherently kind of part of, you know, getting along in our world is you can't deeply examine every decision where you should make the right turn at the intersection or a left turn, right? You have to have instincts that are fairly well honed to deal with the 95% of everyday situations that we face, or maybe it's probably 99.5% or 99.95% of decisions that we can make routinely. Um, the problem is the 0.05% can involve things like um, like presidential elections, like major medical decisions, like major life decisions that happen to be really important. And people tend to um, tend to apply the same heuristics to those complex decisions with sometimes disastrous consequences, right? So there's lots of stuff that people can be primed, for example, when they're tasting wine, where you put cheap wine in an expensive bottle and people can't tell the difference, right? And that's a kind of cute, interesting result, but, you know, but that's, I think, a pretty reasonable shortcut to take and not one mm-hmm. that has all that much consequence. On the other hand, um, you know, when you read some of their critiques of how doctors make decisions mm-hmm. and things that were... Um, were done for years in the medical community for decades, and no one had really done the research empirically to test whether it was helpful or harmful. Um, yeah, know. evidence in medicine is is a, an interesting, interesting topic. Well, and that's part of what, what was what's so frustrating there is that there is data and evidence, right? So you can make a probabilistic decision, even though in a lot of decisions you make in life, that is not a possibility. This podcast is brought to you by Blue Apron, whose mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. These days, that means you'll be cooking things like roasted pork and braised cabbage with barley and glazed apples, Thai green coconut curry with sweet potato and jasmine rice, brown butter and chestnut gnocchi with Brussels sprouts and pea shoot salad. You will be making all of those things in your very own kitchen. You can choose from a variety of new recipes each week or let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you by sending along recipes that they recommend. Recipes are not repeated within a year, so you will never get bored. And it's incredibly easy. Each meal comes in the mail, all the ingredients ready to go with a simple and fun step-by-step recipe card. Now, yes, it's simple to use, but you're still cooking. You'll still be using your own hands and your own kitchen to create a culinary masterpiece, and you will feel good about having made your own great home-cooked meal. Blue Apron also makes a great holiday gift. Give it to someone you love, and maybe they'll invite you over for a meal. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash point. That's blueapron.com slash point. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, back to the show. Well, I think one of the things, so I want to, I want us to start wrapping up here a little bit. Um, and I want to talk as we do that when we think about, as we think about whether all you, you would all recommend the undoing project. Um, what, you know, I want to think about our experiences of reading it. Did you all enjoy the book? Like, did you not enjoy it? Would you, what were your, what were your feelings as you read it? You know, and does anyone have thoughts on that? I really enjoyed the book. Um, I thought it was a good read. I thought it was a, um, like, you know, you have, you have fast reads in terms of easy to be pulled along by the plot. And I felt like this really totally met that criteria. Mm-hmm. Anna, yeah, to follow up on what Maggie was saying, um, just quickly on the question about algorithms. I mean, I brought up the point where in the book or earlier it describes, you know, how, um, 
algorithms can be better at humans and making their own decisions. And he was talking about how, um, you know, the humans were the ones inputting how, how those algorithms made their decision. I mean, there's also a lot of evidence that, right, that machine learning is very, very flawed and that we're making too much out of algorithms these days in our sort of algorithm, big data obsessed world. And so I just make to make clear that I wasn't <laughs> plugging the algorithms there. Um, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was really well written um, and it managed to be narrative and create a story without falling into too many of the traps of trying to then fit that story um, around the information, which is, I think, really difficult to do, right? That's why a lot of people come to 538. They sometimes complain when we do these narrative stories because they're like, wait, you're using one person to describe a trend. And, um, you know, that they, they seem to get really frustrated by that. But, you know, storytelling is important. Um, and so anyways, I, I just I thought that Lewis did a very good job of, of managing to both tell that narrative of these two individuals, but also uh, explain what what it was that they were getting at in their contributions to science. Yeah. It's really kind of personal story between these two friends. Um, that is the kind of defining thread of the book and what gives the book its, its narrative structure, um, which in some ways is a hard thing to, to pull off, right? It's a story. Cause it's kind of, you know, you'd almost call it like a love story or something like that. There's no implication they were actually lovers or anything like that. But um, <laughs> but still, kind of, you know, you see how these two sides come together to create ideas that were very revolutionary, that were very influential. I mean, you can really make the case for um, Kahneman and Tversky being two of the most influential thinkers of the century, right? I mean, without without mm -hmm. much exaggeration. Um, so I think it was a very it was a very good book and kind of cleverly kind of. Uh, weaved through this personal story, lots of little nuggets of insight about where they challenge the conventional wisdom, um, where, you know, kind of thoughts about probabilistic thinking and everything like that. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty, um, pretty enjoyable read and you'll come away smarter. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think one thing that's, that stuck out to me, one line from it is from Amos Tversky's notes when he said, uh, man is a deterministic device thrown into a probabilistic universe. And that, that made me have some feelings. Um, so I definitely, I would recommend it as well. It sounds like everybody would. Um, yeah. So I think that's, we're going to close down this episode of Sparks. This was our discussion of the undoing project by Michael Lewis. And Nate is going to be interviewing Michael Lewis as part of as our second part of this podcast. So keep an eye on your What's the Point feed for that. I think it's going to be coming out tomorrow. Thanks very much for joining us today, Nate. Thank you. And thanks, Maggie Kurth Baker. Thank you. Thanks, Anna Maria Barry Jester. Thanks. And thank you to our producers Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room. As you know, we'll be doing this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. So subscribe now and don't miss an episode and please help us spread the word and please let us know what you think you can email podcasts at 538.com with comments or suggestions this is sparks i'm blythe terrell thanks again for listening